CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. I'm glad to have all of you with us for Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. Before we get started with our panel talking about the issues in the news, I have a couple of announcements I want to make. First of all, um, GPB Radio is going to be carrying the impeachment hearing starting tomorrow morning at, I think we go on the air with NPR's coverage quite early, but at 10 o'clock the hearing itself starts. It now appears that the hearings could last for most of the day. And if that's the case, we're going to stick with those hearings and we will not be bringing you a political rewind tomorrow. But uh, because we hope you'll miss us and wish that we were there, we're going to do a special edition of Political Rewind on Thursday. We'll be on the air at 2 o'clock on Thursday. And among other things, we'll certainly talk about what happens in tomorrow's impeachment hearing. So we'll keep you up to speed on that. But I think it's Tom Faust tells me, as he looks at the schedule, he thinks it's uh, most likely that they will be still meeting in the Intelligence Committee uh, when we would normally be on the air tomorrow. Uh, That said, uh, let me get to the panel. Kevin Riley, the editor, the boss, the chief at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is with us. Hey, Kevin. Hey, it's good to be here. You've put a lot of pressure on us now because if people (laughs) can't listen to the show tomorrow, we have really got to come through for them today. And we will, based on our plans. (laughs) But but that's a lot of pressure. Uh, Let me let you, if you don't mind, uh, you have an event tonight that we should make people aware of that ought to be pretty fascinating. You're at the Atlanta History Center, right? Well, yeah, the History Center is having an event uh, with the authors of the new book about Richard Jewell called Suspect. And it's about the 1996 uh, bombing at Centennial Olympic Park. And so uh, there's going to be a panel discussion that will feature the two authors, Kent Alexander, who was U.S. attorney at the time, Kevin Salwin, a former uh, Wall Street Journal Journal reporter, and uh, Bert Roten, who was uh, our former senior managing editor at the AJC. And they're going to talk about, you know, uh, what really happened. I've read the book. And uh, for those of you who are interested in the topic, I think it's very well done. It has a lot of details that I wasn't aware of and is uh, well worth a read. And I know that there's still room for people who'd, who'd like to come. All right, what time? Do you know what time it gets 730. started? 730. 730 at the History Center tonight. So it's important. You know, this is a very big part of Atlanta, obviously, in the aftermath of the Olympics and moving forward for a number of years. Um, we're also joined today by Wendy Davis. As I said, when you walked in the door, you in the microwave oven for making the longest ride to get here today. Wendy, you're a city commissioner in Rome, Georgia, as we've said in introducing you on other shows. Also a member of the Democratic National Committee. And um, we're really glad you would come down and be part of the show today, in part because you bring an enormous Facebook following <laughs> everywhere <laughs> you go. Why, thank you. I thank you. <laughs> I, I, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be with you, and uh, it, it, it makes me... Um, Blush a little bit. My friends in Northwest Georgia are exciting to have a Northwest Georgia voice on the show. So <laughs> well, thanks we're glad for having me again. We're really glad you're here. Next to you, Charles Cook. Chuck Cook is one of the uh, most respected, best-known immigration attorneys in the Southeast. Maybe, Chuck, beyond the uh, Southeast. It could be elsewhere. You handle cases across the United States that we do. and that beyond, we do. as a matter of fact. And in a few minutes, we want to talk with you about the Supreme Court hearing today on the issue of whether President Trump does have the right to end DACA by executive order. And we'll get to that in just a few minutes. Brian Robinson is back with us today. He is a former uh, uh, communications director for former Governor Nathan Deal. Before that, I I've rarely remember to mention that you also <coughs> spent a good deal of time up on the Hill working for former uh, Congressman Lynn Westmoreland. That's right. How long were you up there with Lynn? I was with him for five years, and then before that with Congressman Gingry from Marietta for two years. So I did a seven-year stint, and then they quit passing stuff, and I got bored and came home. <laughs> <laughs> he also, you also always forget yeah. to mention that Brian worked at the AJC. A long time ago, you were at the – when were you there and what were you doing? I graduated from UGA in 97 and, like, like graduated Friday, started there on Monday and was there for a long time. I was there, like, in that period, 
Kevin, when all the lawyers would come in at night and interview everybody on the copy desk who had been there the night of the bombing because the agency wow. was getting sued at the time. And so I didn't really, I was a kid, I didn't really know what was going on, but I just, but I have very distinct memories because my colleagues were in the thick of all of that at the time. Wow. All right, let's get started. Right after our show went off the air yesterday, Jim Galloway, who, who was here as he is on Mondays and Fridays, turned to me and said, well, I couldn't say it while we were on the air, but in about 10 minutes, we're about to drop a big story. And the story appeared on the front page of the newspaper today. It's online at AJC.com. The story is that the Atlanta Hawks, the Falcons, Atlanta United, and the Braves for the first time, have joined forces as one, Kevin, to push the legislature to pass a sports betting bill, to legalize sports betting in Georgia. Now, let me add one note and then open this up for conversation. The advocates of this measure, although we believe that if the legislature were to look at a casino bill— that would it would require a referendum that form of gambling the voters of georgia would have to approve the promoters of this measure for a variety of reasons that may be getting too deep in the weeds think the legislature can in fact legalize sports betting on their own big story right i think this is going to be one of the most interesting things that the legislature deals with and and i'm sure that brian will have some insight into you know what they'll have to do and whether they can follow this line of reasoning that's been put out there the the, the other thing i would i think it's important when people think about why did the sports teams suddenly get behind this because it used to be right sports teams worried so much about the integrity of the game they did not really want to be associated with betting here's what's changed Fantasy games, of course, have changed it. And what they're after in many cases here is what's called, I think, micro-wagering. In other words, instead of just betting on the outcome of the game, you're literally during the game on your mobile device uh, doing like little wagers like, is this guy going to make or miss the field goal? Is this guy going to get the first down? Is the quarterback going to complete his 10th pass in a row? Is this guy going to make his foul shot? And they want people who are just completely engaged with the game at all times because they worry about the experience of coming to a game and the experience of a team that might not be doing well. Um, Before we go any further in the conversation, um, I want to uh, play a soundbite. David Ralston, the speaker, was on uh, Political Rewind last Wednesday, and uh, Greg Bluestein and I asked him about whether... Uh, there seemed to be an atmosphere more accepting of passing some form of gambling in Georgia in the next session. And the speaker did talk about uh, that with a special emphasis on sports betting. Let's listen to what he said. As I travel around the state, I have people ask me from time to time, why don't y'all do casinos? Or why don't you do horse racing? Or why don't you do sports betting? So it, it, it occurred to me and, and some of my leadership team that when uh, we were faced with the possibility, at least, of a, of a slowdown in revenue, that this might be a good time to, to really kind of put it all on the table. I don't think that we had taken a thorough look at the issue and put all three out there. Okay, so that's one of the things that Ralston said. But more specifically, in talking about why sports betting, he had this to say. And Tennessee, of all places, that's behind everything, including football here in Georgia. <laughs> uh, you know, they passed a sports betting bill last uh, this spring. So a lot of interest in that here in the state. A lot of interest in horse racing has, has, has been the case. Uh, so it know, sounds like 2020 could be the year? 2020 uh, will will uh, you probably will hear a fair amount of discussion. <laughs> so Brian, you were down there during the first. You were down there during Nathan Deal's first term as governor. You know the mood um, in the legislature was pretty resistant to, uh, by many many Republicans to passing any form of gambling in the state. Things have really turned around. Well. 
I want to thank you for that interview you did with the speaker, Bill, because I gave a speech over the weekend about what's coming up in the session, and that provided some great research. Good. I quoted your show <laughs> during my speech. Thank you. The fact that the speaker specifically talked about sports betting lets you know kind of where he is and what he thinks is going to get through his chamber. There's no infrastructure, nothing you see optically. There's no casinos. There's no horse track. It's just something that, to the point made in, in the AJC about sports betting, that people are doing anyway, and this legalizes it, regulates it, and taxes it. Here's why I am a little leery or of the prospects anyway, Bill, is I think it could pass in the House where the Speaker showed some openness to it. You know, you've got some leaders in the House, uh, Alan Powell from Hartwell being, uh, and Brett Harrell from Gwinnett being two of them, who are going around the state getting input on this. Uh, but in the Senate, you are seeing much more resistance and have seen more resistance to this. And it's going to be really hard to get to that two-thirds majority for a constitutional amendment in the Senate. And let me go a bit further. You know, Kevin mentioned fantasy sports. A few years ago, DraftKings and FanDuel, which are these fantasy sports outfits, were trying to get regulated. They're not illegal, mm -hmm. but they're in a legal gray area. And so they were saying, please tax us, because they knew if we tax them, they would be safe illegal. forever. <laughs> they would never get, right. give up that revenue. Right. Even that, which is not illegal, the General Assembly wouldn't legalize. Yeah. And that would only take basically a pure majority, not a two-thirds majority. Well, let me point out again that the the coalition of these four major sports teams in, in Georgia, the people who are representing them, believe that they do not need to get a two-thirds vote because that would throw it, of course, to a referendum by Georgia voters next fall. They believe that they have seen some language that means that sports betting would be legal upon a majority vote just by the legislature. Now, whether that's true or not, that's an argument they're, they're going to try to make. Wendy, here's what, though. When Brian said he was doubtful about its passage, one of the things I immediately thought of is that the Faith and Freedom Coalition quickly, quickly, uh, responded uh, to this coalition. Virginia Galloway, who's their Georgia representative, basically said, this is a bad idea. We shouldn't allow gambling. And she said, wasn't Pete Rose thrown out of baseball for betting on <laughs> he, the game? He, he was indeed. <laughs> and uh, a big fan of the Big Red Machine when I was a little girl. Okay. Uh, got to, Braves lost so much, you had to have a winning team you could also cheer for. Um, you know, I'm, 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 first of all, I'm skeptical that there'll be the the votes at whatever level you need to to get this to pass. And and then the bigger question is, if folks are already doing it, which is the argument is people are doing it, we ought to get the tax money from it. Well, why would they stop doing it the way they're doing it right now, even if it is legalized? So, I mean, there'll still, to me, I see we don't solve that regulate it and get rid of the bad actors problem necessarily. Chuck, uh, it, it's interesting that it is all focused right now on sports betting, not on casinos. I Yesterday on the show, I said that I thought the casino lobbyists were more low-key and backed off in a way that they they were in here in full force mm -hmm. a couple of sessions ago. Uh, Eric Tannenblatt, who's on the show, who understands the lobbying world much better than I do, said, no, no, not at all. The casinos are still pushing hard to try to get casinos passed yeah. in Georgia. Yeah, they're still back there trying to find that. But at the end of the day, they, they simply do not have the support to pass that bill. Uh, and that probably would require a constitutional the amendment. casinos would, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And do you really want to put that constitutional amendment on a presidential election year when you're trying to attract a lot of conservative voters out who might vote against uh, that bill? You know, Wendy said something really interesting just now. You know, we're ask, you're asking the state legislature to legalize something that everybody likes, that everybody's doing. Well, that's the standard for passing bills going forward. There's a lot of other things that people do that are illegal that should be fixed as well. <laughs> well, here, here's the prediction for me, and I, you know I don't usually like to make them, but here's where this will end up. Like, I think the casino guys will support it and stuff, but they're going to go down the road on this sports betting thing, and here's what's going to happen. Our teams are going to say, you will put us at a competitive disadvantage because everyone else is going to be able to do this, and it's a positive thing for fans, and that's what's going to end up getting them over the top because – Georgia, if I know anything about Georgians, they're competitive, mm -hmm. right? They don't want to find out that somehow those teams in Tennessee are going to dominate their teams or those teams from elsewhere. And I believe that it's only a matter of time before the teams make that argument. Brian, I think that's an interesting I think it's a good point. argument. 
Um, so you're on the board of the World Congress Center, which also has authority over the, the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, the State Farm Arena venues. Oh, not State Farm. The Hawks okay. own that arena. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The Hawks own. Okay. My point being, uh, you don't have any responsibility on a measure like this. But I would imagine you and other members of the authority are going to be watching it very carefully, yes? Well, the World Congress Center, of course, is a major draw for conferences from around the world. But having a casino there, you know, arguably would be something that would be another draw to it. And I, I without weighing in on whether or not we, we should do it, I, I agree with Kevin that if it doesn't happen in this session, I think it's still going to happen at some juncture. I think sports betting may be the first toe in the water. I agree with him that that argument will be made, that this is going to be a com- issue of competitiveness. And the fact is, everywhere around the country, you're seeing fewer and fewer fans show up and sit in the seats at these games. Yeah. Even at the University of Georgia, which is a very loyal fan base, I have not been to one game this season where the stadium was full other than the Notre Dame game. Because it's too hot out there. <laughs> Saturday was too cold. But they're and, serving and alcohol they, you know, now. Yeah, I mean, come on. Not at UGA. Not at UGA. No, not no, on I, campus. I, I, I have told them they should. Let it, be said, <laughs> let it be said that neither heat, rain, snow, or sleet will keep Brian Robinson That's right. from, Away from sitting a, in the stands yeah. at Sanford Stadium. It may Stadium. be why I get carried out on a stretcher eventually. <laughs> That's I, true. Somebody, I'm a little um, unclear about one aspect of this. And, Brian, maybe you can help us with this. I understand that there's a tax benefit to the state of Georgia for every bet that's placed on a, on a game, right? Or on a portion of a game, which you pointed out, Kevin. Do the, but the teams have a financial stake in this as well. Do they somehow share in the proceeds? Does anyone I know I think how their position works? is simple. It will make their fans more engaged. They don't yeah. want to stay out of the okay. idea that no they— No cut of the action. Well, I think yeah. it's an indirect benefit that I they could, get from I that. would bet that if they could, they're going to build their own platforms yeah. with, within their stadiums uh, and oh. arenas. That's what I'm guessing they would do. With special deals while you're sitting in the stands and there's a yeah. special bet you can make. There's and, way too much money on the table for them to walk away from that. All right, Wendy. What I, do you I'm, think? I'm I'm just enjoy watching the games. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan, and yeah. it's the whole like I'm like I. I'm, I'm like a fan, you. I'm a fan of my teams, I'm, and I know that sometimes they're going to lose, but I would never. I mean, I'm. It's, I guess I'm not a. I'm a gambling person with my political life, but not with your money. Not with your money. Not with the rest of my well, money. Yeah. Well, so I don't well, know. Bill, just to be clear, their lobbyist points out in our story that they would see no revenue from this kind of gambling. Okay. The yeah. franchises. Right. Um, let's. Okay. Obviously, this could be a great issue for us to follow on Political Rewind as the uh, legislature gets started in January, and we'll be uh, talking about it. Um, let's move on to the hearing this morning. Uh, Chuck Cook, you can start us off on this conversation, and and let's be clear on on what we have here. The Supreme Court today took three cases that related to whether President Trump was legally empowered to say that he would end DACA on his own. Actually, that's not correct. Uh, Tell us what's right. The Supreme Court was addressing the issue of how the president can terminate DACA. Right. Right. president can clearly terminate DACA. Right. Um, and three different courts in the Ninth Circuit, the Second Circuit, and the D.C. Circuit all said, you did it wrong. Um, and uh, so that was the gist of today's argument. Interestingly enough about this case is it took the Supreme Court a year from the time cert- petition for certiorari was filed to actually hear the case. Very unusual for cases they take. They usually hear, take them and hear them within a few months. It's clear they did not want to touch this case. Uh, and I think that they were hoping that the Trump administration would do uh, the proper way of, of ending DACA, which is going through the Administrative Procedures Act, but they did it. All right. So let's – I don't want to – I think to get into the weeds on the legalities of it prevents us from talking about the implications of it. But, but let me make sure that our listeners – thank you for correcting me. So let me try to state it more clearly and you tell me if I'm wrong again. I will do so. <laughs> <laughs> the Trump administration decided to overturn DACA because essentially they said it was done illegally. Correct. And what the courts, the lower courts have said, wait a minute, you have no grounds to, 
to sue to end DACA on the basis of whether it was legally or illegally done. The, this was an administrative action by the f- previous president, Barack Obama. Had you gone at, had you instead said, we're taking an administrative action to change DACA or to eliminate it, you would have been on, on safe ground. Exactly right? exactly right. Okay. So now we're out of the weeds on it, but what does all that mean, well, Kevin I Riley? Mean, <laughs> part of the reason that, that the administration, the Trump administration found itself in this position was they, they, they hemmed and hawed about taking such a hard line. I mean, if you're going to get out there and say, we're eliminating DACA, you've got every issue that comes with it. And they were, they sort of were trying to maneuver to avoid that. And, and they gave the other side, the legal opening that they needed. Yep. I think the question is long-term, you know, what might happen here, both legally, but also practically. I mean, really, can we send, is it almost four, 400,000? Oh, no, it's 700,000 people out of the country or just tell them, well, you have no status here. Good luck. Mm-hmm. Right? How many DACA uh, people do we think we uh, have in Georgia? Right now, they said there's a, just in Georgia, there's 21,000. Yeah. Uh, and nationally, there's about 680,000 left on DACA. Uh, initially, there was about 900,000 uh, kids that applied for DACA out of a potential pool of 1.8 million. So only about half the eligible folks applied. And a number of those that, you know, the big disparity between 900 and 680, a number of those people have actually gotten green cards. They've actually gone through a legal process, not because of DACA, because DACA opened a a short kind of pathway for them. Uh, But the rest are, you know, kind of either are in a legal limbo. And to think that, you know, if if Supreme Court ended DACA on June 1, that on June 2nd, everybody would be deported. That's not how this works. Uh, It just further burdens an, an overburdened immigration system putting these kids gradually back into an undocumented status. You know, uh, Wendy, Kevin uh, uh, came close to uh, making a point. He made a good point. But but to further elaborate on his point about how they hemmed and hawed in the administration about this, at one point, President Trump was saying, do we really want to deny these young people the opportunity to stay and work, be productive citizens in this country? This was before Stephen Miller grabbed him by both lapels and shouted in his face, get off that argument. Well, there are a lot of things that President Trump has uh, thought one way about one day and a different way about another day. Uh, I think it's I'm really hard pressed to to look at my neighbors uh, who've been there since been in America since they were two. Right. Uh, Have gone through school who are productive citizens who've served in our military or, you know, gone to college or living good lives and and say, well, because your parents did something. 15 years ago, go back to where a place they have no recollection of, uh, no connection to necessarily. I, I mean, it just seems uh, unkind Brian, and impractical. I'm sorry. No? I didn't mean to interrupt you. Brian, is, is, is DACA a good issue for the president? Uh, for end, is, is ending DACA a good issue for the president to uh, want to run on for re-election, among the many other issues he'll run on? Well— you know, I think the, a tweet either this morning or yesterday said that if he wins this case, it allows us to strike a deal with Democrats to figure out a way to let these folks stay. So I think he wants to figure out a pathway to have this population stay in the country and remain productive citizens. But I think taking a stand against illegal immigra- immigration and not having a bunch of gray area in how you say it is fairly important. It was a huge part of his message to build a wall. Uh, chants from 2016 were a big part of how he won the the primary. Everybody thought that was going to kill him in the general. It didn't. There is a lot a lot of people in this country who want to see a significant reduction in the number of immigrants coming in, and particularly illegal immigrants. And that's very normal in American history when we get to about 14 percent of the nation being foreign born, which is where we are today. We are at historically high levels of foreign-born population, and there's always a little bit of a backlash there. You know, uh, I, I know you don't want to get in the, weed, in the weeds here, Bill, but uh, Chuck, help me out here. I mean, it, what you're really talking about, Brian, is a comprehensive immigration reform, which people are always talking about. In other words, like, let's, let's get out of all this confusion, all these temporary measures, and really have policy. 
<clears throat> Fair statement. That's that's what you're urging here, and that's what the president has said he wanted. But explain DACA because it's it, it was a result of an inability to do that, right? Well, DACA is really interesting. Why do we have DACA in the first place? Uh, dreamers, these kids that were looking for some solution to their problem in a country they they don't know, uh, their home country. That's why their new hashtag is "Home is here for them." Uh, what they they started actually doing sit-ins at President Obama's re-election offices around the United States in 2012. Here in Atlanta, he shut they shut down his office for three days in May of 2012. Uh, and uh, this got back to the president. He's like, well, we got to do something after he had said for several years, look, I'm not the king. I can't make law. Um, and his administration said, well, you can do this through this program. You're in charge of enforcement. You can you can use the deferred action program. You can create DACA. So his his secretary of Homeland Security said, here's how we're going to conduct enforcement for this group of people. And they got to meet these certain criteria in return for coming forward and registering themselves in case of future potential removal, we're going to give them and, a work and permit. And it's a relatively stringent uh, Oh, it's very stringent. Very program. stringent. They, Absolutely. They, they, have, they have to go through many hoops to be able to be qualified as DACA. Absolutely. No, uh, no felony. Uh, if you have three misdemeanors, which are traffic tickets, by the way, in Georgia, misdemeanors are traffic ticket, or major misdemeanor like a DUI, you don't qualify. So they're not criminals. They pay a fee. They pay a $495 fee every two years, and they go through a background check. So it's every, every two, two years, years, right? Right. Yeah. And... If if the president gets his way here, you know, let's imagine for a second that he does. And you said they're not going to just deport everybody. Yeah. And uh, do you think and as do any of us think that it can lead to a finally a resolution of this whole thing? Or do you think it just goes on? Well, let's be clear. A year and a half ago, the Democrats offered this deal to the president. Green cards for DACA kids in return for twenty five billion dollars yeah. for the wall. Yeah. And the president said no. I also want you to cut legal immigration in half. Yeah. Uh, and that was Stephen Miller's doing. So the deal has been on the table. And the Democrats, I think, would do that tomorrow. So, um, Wendy, um, I was looking at some figures about DACA recipients who are mostly employed in, in the workforce in, in states around the country. And, and here's just a few things that I, I, I learned. Um, DACA recipients pay about $2 billion dollars a year in state and local taxes. They pay almost 9% of their income in state and local taxes, which is nearly the same as the 9% paid by the middle 20% of income tax uh, payers. Um, continuing DACA uh, will probably increase revenues in the state and local economy by 425 million dollars or so. Do you happen to know the breakdown for Georgia, Chuck? Yeah, there I, actually is a web page that talks yeah. about Georgia's breakdown. You're talking about a billion dollars uh, uh, over a period of 10 years into the Georgia tax system. Yeah. So, so, Wendy, it's not as though we're these are freeloaders who were given a free ride to. Well, which is probably why uh, one of the articles said, you know, a Fox News poll had 73 percent support for Dreamers. And for giving them an opportunity to stay in this country and work in this country legally. And All right. Before we get to a break, Brian, you made a really interesting point that that well, the president you. presumed. <laughs> well, you all, you all. Don't try that again. Occasionally. <laughs> um, do you so answer the question that, that uh, Chuck was asked by Kevin? Uh, do you imagine that there is a will? Should the president uh, uh, get this case resolved in his favor? And we're told by the reporting from the uh, Supreme Court on the hearings this morning, what a big surprise. The judges, justices seemed quite divided on whether President Trump had acted uh, in, in, legally or not, constitutionally or not. Do you believe it can be the beginning? of a bipartisan agreement on immigration, or is that just a fantasy that has been elusive for decades now? Well, at least for a good 15 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, you remember, it wasn't that long ago that Georgia Senator Saxby Chambliss really went out on a limb yep. to try to get a very yep. reasonable immigration bill done. And it was a huge missed opportunity for the Congress and ex and the extremes of both sides that that didn't get done. Mm -hmm. It is a it is a tragedy, and in many ways, it's a human tragedy that's playing out in the lives of of these adults who were brought here as children. And I think that this is there are a couple of things the president can do to show a bit of centrism and bipartisanship. It's going to be really hard in this impeachment atmosphere to do it. But one is prescription drug prices. That's something that they could bring Democrats to the table. And I think the other one is immigration. And 
the fact is his base wants him to take a tough stand on immigration. They do want to see even less legal immigration and, and, and root out illegal immigration. But no one wants to see police raiding homes of people who go to work every day and taking dads away from crying babies. And yet the we president would say that's his base. That visual. Who, who and, and he said they're hardened criminals in a tweet today or yesterday. <laughs> yes, he did. He said, I mean, I think he said some are. And, and he said none, some none, are. Let's be clear. None are. None are. Zero percent of DACA kids are hardened criminals. Zero percent. How, how do you know that? Because, because you can't, can't have DACA qualify. if you have a they felony. They don't qualify, yeah. Zero percent. It is a complete lie, to be clear. Not a mistake. It's a complete lie. And I will defer to, to, uh, yeah. <laughs> to him on this because he's the yeah. expert and I'm not. We've got to get to a break. But one final point about this before we do take the break and move on. You know, this is one of those issues. Brian is, is right. Immigration is one of those opportunities. Yeah. We have said on this show since the weeks after President Trump was inaugurated that he had a rare opportunity. Yep. He could have been Nixon in China. He yep. could have been a president who chose to take on Issues that would have won bipartisan support, and he preferred from the very beginning of his administration to play only to his base. And whether you think the president is has done a great job or not, that's been a missed opportunity. Well, well, it 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 has, it has, and it's uh, and the the politics of fear and division are what got him elected, and what he kept. He keeps going there. He keeps going there again with the tweet this week that's baseless. All right. We got to get to a break. Uh, we got a lot more to talk about on the other side. So stay with us for more on Political Rewind. GPB's vehicle donation program provides an easy, convenient way to support public radio for you and your community. We'll even pick up that car, truck, or SUV you've been wanting to get rid of for free. Give us a call. 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org slash cars. We truly appreciate supporters like you. And thanks. On the next Fresh Air, how online extremists hijacked the American political conversation. We talk with New Yorker staff writer Andrew Morantz, who spent the past few years embedding with alt-right trolls and propagandists, profiling them, and watching how they exploited social media. He's the author of the new book, Antisocial. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org, or listen live on the GPB apps. We're back on Political Rewind. This is another one of those shows when I wish you could, like, listen on a side channel to the conversation that continues even <laughs> when we're in break, uh, because this is a panel that uh, has a lot uh, to talk about with one another. Uh, we uh, have a quick news story that comes from The Hill. Interesting timing, Tom Faust points out. Attorney General William Barr has announced he's going to launch an anti-gun violence initiative at the same time as the public impeachment hearings begin in the House on Wednesday. He plans to roll out Project Guardian, a strategic plan to decrease gun violence across the country. He'll be speaking about this in an appearance in Memphis, Tennessee. None of us knows more than the very basics of it, but Brian... We knew there was going to be some counter-programming going on. We thought perhaps it was all going to be attacks on the Democrats. But here's an example of an attempt to uh, create a positive program that will take some attention away from the impeachment hearings. I think anything that he can do to take attention away from the impeachment hearings is, is a great strategy. Right. The, the, the issue becomes if they can be disciplined in their messaging, which has always been an issue, you know, they— they, they sometimes have a great story to tell and sort of trip over them, their own tweets. All right, one last thing. Well, two things I thought on that. One was squirrel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing was, is it not infrastructure week? I just, uh, you know, yeah, that is. Oh, you cynic. Uh, Chuck Cook, one last quick thing about uh, the uh, Supreme Court mm -hmm. hearing. Who are we looking at? To John be, Roberts. This is all about John Chief Roberts. Justice. This is this is going to be a 5-4 decision either way. Apparently, during our argument, they spent a lot of time talking about whether Obama had the right to create DACA, which is completely irrelevant to this case. Uh, so real, But it really boils down to John, John Roberts. And what you want to do is look at the census case that came down last term because it's basically the exact same issue. 
Uh, and in that case, Roberts was the deciding vote in a 5-4 decision saying you can't ask citizenship okay. cases. Well, we so know this is months that. in the making. We know we are not likely to hear the outcome of this June. until next June, which means it'll be right in the middle yep. of the presidential race. It also race. matters so much in Georgia. I yes, mean, that's the thing. A lot of times the Supreme Court and uh, will deal with these things, and it doesn't seem close to home. This one is. Uh, I have seven DACA employees. I don't know how many, if you have DACA employees at the AJC, but I have seven. Uh, and I have to tell you that uh, if we lost those seven kids, uh, it would be detrimental uh, both to our clients and to, uh, and to our staff. It, it, um, so. There are neighbors, right? And having DACA allowed them to come out of the shadows and, and be less scared. Okay. And blossom. And, blossom. And, blossom. and now we're – and this whole controversy has left them not knowing. And, and in the piece I saw, 200,000 yeah. children they have, Right. I, I mean, who it's are Americans, just, and they're Americans, they're Americans. That, which is a complication. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, a lot of agreement around the table about this. Uh, one other quick note about the Supreme Court: they did issue a uh, finding today that's very important. We don't have to get into it in detail, but in fact, they turned down an appeal from Remington, the gunmaker Remington, in the 2014 lawsuit that was brought forward by a survivor of families of victims of the Sandy Hook Elementary School mass shooting. Uh, uh, Remington wanted to block this lawsuit, said it was uh, illegal, asked the Supreme Court to uh, throw it out, and the Supreme Court today said, nope, that lawsuit can go forward. That will be an issue of enormous consequence, too, I think, down the road. So we'll watch how that all plays out. All right. Uh, Kevin Riley, I am so glad. I, for weeks, I've wanted to say to you on the show, please, Kevin, we're reading polls from all over the country about the <laughs> issues that matter. Please, Kevin, you have the resources. Do a poll, and you've done it. Talk to us about the poll that you released today, uh, some of which you released today, about how Georgia voters feel on the subject of impeachment and conviction of the president. Well, before I say that, I was getting your message. I want you to know that. <laughs> and and, and um, this is just the beginning of our polling. We have a lot of polling planned. In fact, uh, tomorrow you can look forward to a pretty good look at how 2020 sets up in our state. In and, the paper tomorrow morning. Right. And, okay. and it will show, I think, that Georgia, as for now, looks extremely competitive. I mean, it's early. You know, there are some limitations to what we can know. But the bottom line on, on the uh, – uh, impeachment question, fifth, our poll shows that 54 percent of registered Georgia voters disapprove of the president's job performance, while 44 percent approve, and that a majority is behind this impeachment inquiry. So we've got these are registered voters, not likely voters. Yeah, it's just hard to talk to likely yeah, voters this early. That, but so I you think go it's important voters. to make that distinction right. for our listeners. 54 percent of Georgia voters approve of the inquiry, 44% disapprove the impeachment inquiry. What's interesting is they're dead even on the subject of whether he should be removed from office. 47% say yes, 47% say no. But, but if you drill down just a little bit into the crosstabs, 51% of the people who identify themselves as independent say they're against removing Trump from office. Brian, that's an important figure, although it's pretty close. Uh, it, for the time being, at least, independents in Georgia aren't quite convinced. Well, independents in Georgia, at least for now, are the people who decide our elections. Yeah, they my are point. The, they are the margin. We're close enough now to where uh, they can go either way and, and be decisive. Now, for Republicans, it's worked out because independents for the last 20 years, at the end of the day, have said that they say undecided, undecided, mm -hmm. and then they go vote Republican. Mm -hmm. So that's what you've been seeing happen for 20 years. Now, is that going to begin to change? Now, Kevin was getting into something very important into the registered and likely. Look, registered voters, if everybody in Georgia who was registered had to go vote, if it was compulsory, we would be a Democratic state, okay? Mm -hmm. There's an organic Democratic right. majority in this state. But a lot of those registered voters are not just not necessarily likely voters. Many of them are unlikely voters. People are registered automatically now, even though they have no interest in voting. So that shows a little bit of the Democratic tilt that's in Georgia, but not necessarily voters. So Trump is and has been underwater in the state from the very beginning. Yeah. I mean, he's never really been in positive territory here with his favorable and unfavorable rating. 
but he still won by five points in 2016. And as things are shaping up, this is not going to be a referendum on Trump in 2020. It's going to be a choice. And the Democrats are offering up people at the top who want to do away with their health insurance, who want to decriminalize border crossings. You're slipping into talking points, but I get your point. I think better to say say the Democrats really haven't put – I mean, obviously haven't decided, but there are a lot of questions about the people they're putting out there. Brian, I take your point, and I want to ask Wendy about it. Um, First of all, do you you know – Brian's correct, right, that it's – that Democrats have had a bit bit more difficulty in getting voters to the polls than Republicans have. How – but how do you win the battle of energizing voters in – 2020, and add to that something of what Brian suggested, which is if the Democratic Party is going to be promoting uh, Medicare for all, among other issues that liberals, progressives are very interested in, but that so many in the middle aren't, how do you win? Well, I I think you win by by convincing people that we, uh, first of all, there's so many negatives about Trump, I won't go through the list. But we are whoever our nominee is, has got to have the positives that are relative to people's everyday lives, talking about how we grow the economy, talking about how we make sure that education is there for all the children in Georgia, right? Like making the argument in Georgia and making sure that people understand that our nominee will put our nation back on a path of governing sensibly, having stronger, more consistent, more reliable foreign relations. Uh, I think those issues are going to be important to the voters. Do you, do I want to know why Kevin's not, not saying those are talking points. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to interrupt. She was about, as a matter of fact. Yeah, media is, bias. Uh, no, is he talking I, point, I mean, please? No, he asked me why. about the election. Here's what he asked me about. But, but I do think it's important to point this out in the poll, that 42% of voters have a favorable impression of Trump, and that number is up. Since April by two points. Interesting. So, I mean, I I think that despite all the – think about that. All the stuff that's going on and all the things that Democrats are doing. But what's it up from? I mean, it's almost margin of error. It's just two points. But but think about it. I mean, they haven't been able to move that rating despite all these – It hasn't gotten lower. It's still margin of error stuff, but it hasn't gotten lower. I think that's uh, even more significant. Well, you know, it's really interesting. Every day I meet with with both immigrants and U.S. citizens, and I I have taken for the last couple of years – a poll in my office. I literally ask everybody who's a potential voter, are you going to vote uh, in 2020? And to a person, they said, not only said yes, they said absolutely. Uh, and I can tell you that for maybe one or two, none of them will be voting for Trump. I think we're going to see an interesting shift in Georgia where we've always struggled to get Latino vote out. Um, I think there's going to be a You're telling me, Chuck, rise. that instead of spending all the money on these polls, we could <laughs> just have you do this. And I, will <laughs> tell you, I just think yeah. we're going to see a big rise in, in immigrant, which is a big population in Georgia, uh, immigrant voting this next election. There's a lot of interest in that, uh, from just anecdotally from what I've seen. Yeah. Let me go beyond anecdotal and give you some data on that. And this goes beyond Im- immigrants. This isn't just uh, just them. But at this time in 2015, the polling question was, you know, are you energized to vote next year? Mm-hmm. That number was about 48 percent. That time today, it is 73 percent. Wow. Yeah, well, it and, is a remarkable and, and, and that's what I wanted And that's to for everybody. That's for everybody. 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 Well, that's okay. the, the yeah. point. You have got to win, as a Democrat, the battle of energized voters if you expect Georgia to flip in yes. 2020. Yes, we do. And, and it's and, a huge challenge. And that's why we're not sitting back and waiting. Right. That that's why the the National Party is invested here in grassroots uh, activism. Right. That's why the state party has been involved. That's why we were involved in city elections. That's why we're um, working really hard about candidate recruitment. Right. It's uh, because we can't nobody. None of us have the energy to sit back. We have to stay engaged all day, every day and and not sleep until uh Election. Until it's over with. Polls All right, let's, do next let's get our final break of the show out of the way because we still have a list of <laughs> items that I'd really love to hear the panel respond to. This is Political Rewind. My name is Peter Broadhead. My wife and I own Brighter Day Natural Foods Market in Savannah. We've been in business. This will be our 40th year. We are a natural foods market. We've been underwriting with Georgia Public Broadcasting, and it's been very, very effective. We're reaching people that are very thoughtful and just want to get more in-depth information. So when our name comes up, they're in that thinking process, and they're not tuning us out. 
To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. Democrats say President Trump abused his power when he asked for a probe into a political rival. Now key players involved in the Ukraine affair will offer public testimony for all of America to hear. The president is not above the law. They've got nothing. All they have is a phone call that was perfect. Join NPR for special coverage of the public hearings of the House impeachment inquiry into the president from NPR News. Join GPB for NPR's special coverage live starting at 10 tomorrow morning. I learned something every day during breaks on this show, and I just learned from you, Chuck Cook, that for 11 years you've been doing what? The Immigration Hour podcast, uh, and we talk for anywhere wow. from 30 to 60 minutes about immigration issues of that week. How do people find it? Uh, they can find it on any of the major podcasting distribution channels under the Immigration Hour. Immigration Hour. It sounds so civilized. <laughs> it, and, and sometimes it actually is. Uh, today we interviewed a DACA recipient and talked about the DACA case in detail. Oh, my uh, gosh. So Okay, well, that sounds like something that would be worth our listening to. I'm telling you, between this show, what Brian's doing... Chuck's podcast, yeah. our podcast yeah. at the AJC. Yeah. I don't, there's not enough time in the day to listen to everything. <laughs> well, there is if you drive and in that, Atlanta traffic. I was going to say, that, driving to Atlanta. And that is if you're not already listening to Dolly Parton's America, which is one of the greatest podcasts that I have ever heard. But that's another story. Uh, Wendy, uh, you made a point as we walked in here um, that uh, Julian Castro, candidate for president, Still uh, hanging in there. You were impressed by a comment he made just yesterday in the state of Iowa. What did he say and what did you like about it? Well, this is not a direct quote, but the yeah. gist of it was, um, as Democrats, it, it doesn't make any sense that we're telling African-American women in particular how important they are to the party and that they're the reason we have been successful, uh, particularly giving them so much credit in 2018. It doesn't make sense to be saying that on the one hand and yet continuing to have our nomination process dominated by uh, Iowa and New Hampshire that are um, beyond majority white, right, with very few uh, voters of color in those states. It's an interesting comment, and it's especially interesting when you think about the fact that we don't get to a southern state until South Carolina, which is basically the fourth state right. to hold a, a, a primary or a caucus where you have the first major infusion of African Americans. But, Brian, you've been to Iowa uh, uh, during uh, campaigns, as I have. We've seen each other in the past <laughs> in Iowa. But your point is there, there's a pretty good Hispanic population in Iowa. Yeah, I went to the Des Moines uh, State Fair parade this year because I went to see all the candidates come and speak at the State Fair, which was a bucket list item for me. And if you're a political nerd, I highly recommend it. <laughs> uh, if you want to see Bill in, in, in Iowa, uh, watch the old documentary War Room from yeah. the Bill Clinton years. Yeah. Uh, Bill's a star yeah. in that show. Uh, <laughs> Bill Clinton once said to me, you're in War Room more than I am, <laughs> which I think is an exaggeration, but go ahead. <laughs> but I, I'm completely with Wendy on this. I I love going to New Hampshire and North, I'm sorry, and, and New Hampshire and Iowa, but it's time to shake this up a little bit. It, my issue isn't so much the demographics of the state so much as it is they're not representative of America in many different ways. Yeah. Let's let's let some other states have a say in this. Are you ready to create the Georgia caucuses and change our entire primary process and put us out front? Nobody wants caucuses. No, well, clear. I want primaries. Caucuses tend to lead to the most extreme candidates. Yeah. Well, and caucuses candidate. are not democratic with a little D. Yeah. No. I, again, yeah. I my my I point of view is very colored by my two miserable months in Iowa in 2007. <laughs> but for but, Bill Richardson, yeah, I was uh, I worked on his campaign in okay. 2007. Okay. And, don't and, hang your head. He and, was no, a, I'm proud know. to work for him. I'm disappointed yeah. in how Iowa treated you know, us. But <laughs> Kevin, 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 this is like the hottest third rail in American politics. Oh, changing the schedule so that Iowa and New Hampshire don't go first. There have been candidates who've talked about it, and they got slapped down pretty hard. Yeah, it's just so hard to change anything like that. But (laughs) when you think about it, it is a little bit crazy. I mean, especially when you look at the way the country's changing. But I I suppose some people feel it advantages them, right? I mean, some candidates like the system. but But how that power expresses itself in the process of creating the process is again it's troubling it's frankly it's one of the reasons i wanted to be on the dnc is to try to figure out an avenue to try to change it my 
you know, baby step idea is the first four cock, the first four events to have them all in the same week or in the same 10-day period. The, so it would be New Hampshire, Iowa, S- Nevada, 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 and South, South Carolina. Carolina. So you get four regions of the country. You get you get to add some diversity with South Carolina and Nevada. Um, and so and it's a baby step toward changing that. That sounds brilliant. How come no one went for it? Because uh, I haven't had the opportunity. Today is my first chance to give a big push so to my again, grand idea. We are breaking news on political reality. <laughs> Wendy Davis calls for... That's Complete a, change of our primary right. system. Yeah. Right. Well, let me tell you, uh, uh, but it, to make more news, Brian Robinson completely endorses just, Wendy Davis. Well, that may, be, yeah. that may have doomed the entire <laughs> idea right there. <laughs> All right. So while we're talking about that, Brian, let me turn to you on this first. Uh, we know that Brad Raffensperger, I'm assuming not independently, I'm assuming after consulting with the governor and other state Republican leaders, chose to put the Georgia primary, he he put it fairly far back in the schedule. It's not until March 24th. We will have had Super Tuesday well before then. Has he marginalized Georgia to some extent by pushing it back in the schedule? Or in fact, by singling out the state, has he given us more clout? Well, Bill, this is a situation of extenuating circumstances. You know, when Kemp was Secretary of State, he put together the SEC primaries Absolutely. to have the southeastern states uh, pull their weight together. The reason why we can't go ahead uh, or don't want to go ahead too early this year is we have a new voting system. And we had a test You're run uh, last week with, in, I think, six counties. Mm-hmm. I read in the AJC. Yeah. Uh, so from AJC's reporting on it was there were a few glitches, a few hiccups there. There were more than a few glitches. Five of the six counties that used the system had significant problems. That's that's not a glitch. Look, I I just go by what AJC says as as scripture, you know, and they said at the end of the story that the voters loved it, that, that it was very popular with those who used it. So this gives us a little more time to work out any potential problems because, look, we cannot have a major voter error problem during it's a point well climate. taken. Yes. We cannot. Wendy? I, I think it gives us, uh, it gives people a reason. More people are going to come to Georgia, at least on the Democratic side, mm-hmm. obviously, uh, because of us being alone. TV now, station's going to make more money, I imagine. They're, they're oh. going to be coming just that last week, <laughs> yes. right? They're not going to come before okay. Super Tuesday is over, but they'll come here now. And in the past, the only reason they've come to Georgia was come to Atlanta for a fundraiser. And if it stretches out, Let's start, remember in 2016, Sanders, Hillary Clinton went on for a long time. Yep. Michigan, Wisconsin, those are much later states. And there was tremendous coverage and tremendous import placed on the outcomes in those states, which traditionally you would have thought would be too late to matter. But I, this is going to matter. This race, yeah. I, everybody who wants to narrow this race to two or three candidates right now, I'm just telling you, we are going to, unless their money completely dries up, I think we are going to have still seven, maybe eight candidates in the race right. to hear. Kevin? Right. I think Georgia should commit. Now, you know, I know that it's a little bit of taking chances to making it as significant as possible in the political process going forward. I mean, it is quickly going to become a absolutely crucial state. This is a former Ohioan speaking here, mm-hmm. yeah. and we should take yeah. advantage of that in every way that we can. Georgia, yeah. the new Ohio, says Kevin Rather. All right, that's <laughs> a, I did not it's, say it's that. A new t- Without Sometimes the snow. Fake news. Fake news. It's on our Without license plates now, the new Ohio. Without the snow. All right. We are completely out of time uh, for today's show. Brian Robinson, Chuck Cook, Wendy Davis, Kevin Riley, it was great to have you here. What a terrific discussion. Thank you all for... And prayers for President Carter. Let's throw that in. That's right. Yeah, we know he's recovering. He's had his surgery now. And we just will watch. And as you say, we will give all of our thoughts uh, to him for a quick recovery. Uh, Again, we may or may not be on the air tomorrow, but the impeachment hearings will be on GPB radio. You can listen to them here. And then we'll be here for a special edition of Political Rewind on Thursday at 2 o'clock. Thanks for being with us as you listen to the show today. See you all maybe tomorrow, maybe not. Take care.